Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, if you would. <clears throat> Mark chapter 6. We do have <clears throat> three parallel accounts throughout the synoptics of this event. This is the healing of the demoniac boy. Uh, it occurs as they're coming down from the Mount of uh, and I say the Mount of Transfiguration, it's not the name of it, of course. This is the mount for which the Transfiguration happened. But it takes place in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Matthew 17, verses 14 through 21. As well as Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 42. <clears throat> and we'll read them in that order. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14, And when he came to his disciples, Jesus, of course, he, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? Now again, if you have these outlines, you see some of these verses underlined. Again, these are the underlined parts are what we don't find in the other parallel accounts. Uh, and I'd be more than happy to add you to that email list. It's not required, but it is uh, probably an added benefit to your studying. That whole first section I just read is only in Mark's account. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, and uh, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to, the, to thy disciples that they should cast him out. And they could not. He, now, when he says to that who he talked to here, these disciples, it does not include, of course, Simon Peter, James, and John, who are at the top of the mount with the Lord Jesus. Remember, this didn't happen separate from the events. In the beginning of this verse, in context, Jesus is coming down from that mount. He's coming down with that inner circle. So these three weren't there. I don't point that out to say those three could have healed this boy. I just want to make sure that we understand who's involved and, and where they're all coming from. And he says, uh, he answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, this is Jesus speaking, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. Again, we see an example of the demons know who Jesus is. They fear and recognize his authority. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child, and, often, and oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried, and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was as one dead. Insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was <clears throat> coming to the house, Jesus, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, this, can, this kind can come forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now over in Matthew 17, verses 14 through 21, we read of this account. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, 
For he is a lunatic and sore vexed, for oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, and this is underlined, as you may see in your outline, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out by, by prayer and fasting. And the last account, Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 42. It says, And it came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is my only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, and he foameth again, and bruising him hardly departed, departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet a coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. Heavenly Father, as we open up these scriptures, Father, as we consider this account that uh, I'm certain is beyond understanding for most of us, Father, help us. Help us to see, not that we would understand all the intricacies of demonic possession or even all the intricacies of driving out such a one, but that we would understand the full authority that your Son has over such things, over all things, that he is indeed our deliverance, our vengeance, that he is the one to trust such things to. Help us to see these disciples and what is called out in them and their lack of faith and perhaps see ourselves there in much need of faith, in much need of deliverance, in much need of uh, ridding ourselves of doubt and false claims of strength and power. Help us to turn unto you this day, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We can not always stay on the Mount of Glory with the King. We must descend with him into the valley of need where Satan is at work. And this is what not only is illustrated here, but is literally performed. Uh, I'm certain Jesus, uh, if he was a man of the flesh as we were, would prefer to stay at the top of the mountain with uh, Moses and Elijah. Would prefer not to have to come down with all these who lack faith, all these who are filthy and demon-possessed. But the calling that we have is to follow him whithersoever he goeth. And Simon Peter, James, and John also transcended and came down from the mountain. While Peter, James, and John were experiencing the glory of God on the mountain, the other nine disciples and the rest of the church <clears throat> were involved in an embarrassing situation in the valley below. Here's a man whose child, and, and, and we know it doesn't work this way, but perhaps we should read it this way, his child was demon-possessed. This isn't an older man. This isn't an aged person who is blind or lame. It's a child. Could we not have enough faith to see a child healed? Not without him. Apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing. Now, it's not just because he's up in the mountain. 
They lack the faith, Jesus says, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. So I'm going to give you the opportunity. If you have said unto a mountain, Remove hence, and it's gotten out of yonder place, raise your hand, and you won't need the rest of this message. None are risen. We shall continue. All of us have a lack of faith to one degree or another. None of us are in such great states in here with such a tremendous amount of faith that we have not a need for more, that we have not a need for trials and testing and proving. Even those among us who are most, most faithful to devotions and Bible reading and daily prayers and tithing and attendance, we have a great need for more grace, which is why it comes in abundant portions. Was it jealousy over their missing invitations to the transfiguration that these nine and, and the remaining uh, persons that would have been considered part of the church at this point could not drive this, uh, this demon out? It was a lack of faith. Was it their distraction with their inability? Was it an, another situation where they were distracted by their lack of bread, by their lack of elements, by their lack of preparedness? We in the flesh get so caught up and tied down with the idea that we're not prepared that we hardly move. With the very idea that we might be caught off guard by one who questions our ability, our uh, um, loyalty, our knowledge, that we don't move at all. What of Moses? Did he not have the same problem? When God said, you shall go unto Pharaoh and say, let my people go, did he not say that with this tongue I could do no such thing? That with this lame and dumb tongue, I could not pronounce such a thing? Who shall I say sent me? How will they believe? My beloved friends, you're in luck. If you believe in luck, you shouldn't. You don't have to have any ability of yourself. You have to believe in the one who does. And you have to be faithful unto the one who does and share the gospel, believing that he is the power behind it all. This is no less a miracle than salvation itself, but we're called to believe without evidence. The hope of, uh, of, of what it is that we desire to come forth from our salvation promise, that which we have faith in, that which we look to, we have to believe. In this situation, a distraught father had brought his demonized son, deaf and dumb, for the disciples to heal, but they could not cast forth the demon. Jesus had given them this power back in Mark 3.15, Mark 6.7, and verse 13 as well it was referenced, but they were unable to deliver the boy. They'd seen miracles. They'd been a part of miracles. They'd seen the Lord do miraculous healing. Uh, what some denominational institutions get caught up in is, do we hold our hands the right way? Do we say the right words? Do we wear the right garments? Do we invoke the right names? But there's only one! for which deliverance can come. And it's not you. And that's not through some kind of magic or witchcraft that you're going to invoke. It's through Jesus Christ himself. None can come to the Father but by me, he says. That won't change. The religious leaders here in this situation as Jesus comes down, and it's most apparent in Mark's account there, were having a good time arguing with the disciples and trying to discredit them before the people. That still happens today, does it not? Baptists, 
Bible-believing individuals getting caught up with foolishness like the view, feeling that they have to argue with the world to try and prove that they're wrong, you're not going to prove anybody against their own opinion. We just read that with Thomas Jefferson's quote this morning. They must be undone. And that undoing comes from Jesus himself through the revelation of the law of the wickedness within. I find the first point here, uh, I really couldn't come up with anything clever. So the first point here is entitled Curious Timing. And there's just a couple of things to say about it. And this is a relatively short uh, message, which is probably <laughs> refreshing, I imagine. But Curious Timing. Consider the opportunity the scribes took to question these disciples. Jesus was up on the mountains talking with two dead angels, if you want to call them that, but two dead saints. And the three innermost circle, maybe the three who exercised the strongest faith, if, if that's possible. We don't know if that's why they were in the inner circle, but perhaps it came across that way to the scribes because they were always the closest to Jesus. This would be like the general and all of his closest lieutenants, not with the army, not at the front lines. Curious timing, is it not, that Satan would permit the scribes to make their approach now? Get on in there. Question their beliefs. See if Gehazi is as strong as Elisha. See if these servants know anything about their master. Very much like the devil, a roaring lion seeking whom he shall devour. Has this not consistently been the case when their Lord was upon the mountains in prayer to the Father, that storms would suddenly stir up? That doubt would certainly uh, quickly creep in? They were never outside of his watchful care, but they were no longer watching for him. This was not exclusive to his physical presence, as we mentioned earlier this morning. When their minds drifted towards not having bread, they also began to miss that very significant blessing that was the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Consider the timing of the lunatic child. In one account, the latter one, he's referred to as the devil. Not the devil, but a devil. Answering to the great devil. This diablos, this uh, usurper, this deceiver, this liar. Right as the Lord was requiring answers from the scribes for their questioning, this lunatic child. And I want you to picture it exactly as it's described. And I hold nothing against the two babies in the room. But imagine how distracting it would be for a child of whatever age this child was to come in gnashing and foaming and making a scene. I mean, Zeb's distracting some of you right now. Is this an accident that the devil will send one of his own demons into this crowd to mix it up just as the scribes are trying to question those who ought to know the teachings of their Lord and they're flustered? They can't give an answer? They can't drive out the demon? Uh, I mean, it, as, as these four children were being delivered, I didn't get in the doctor's face and say, is that the right way to do it? Should you do it that way? Should you put your hand there? Should you cut that? It's not something that we would tend to do in a high-pressure situation, such as delivering a demon from a lunatic child. And yet, that's exactly what the scribes are doing. How come you can't do it? What's well, missing? I guess it's best magic after all. Janice and John Brace, you all can't do it like he did. Can't do it without him. What good are you? Are these not words you've heard? As you've strayed from the church or strayed from the word or strayed from the faith, have you not heard the devil himself say, you're not good enough? You can't do it alone? He's not lying to you. You can't do it alone. You aren't good enough. You need Jesus. 
And every time you stray from this word, you will hear that roaring lion. You're worthless. You are vain. You are empty. That preacher is a liar. You have no hope. You can't be kept forever. And eventually that Thomas Jefferson quote that we opened with starts to kick in, does it not? Your theories and your opinions become your religion because you don't have anything else. Don't stray from this word, this living word, this word of power, this word of security. As a result, we don't even know specifically what questions these scribes are asking. None of the nine apparently told any of the three that were recording this. We don't know exactly what they were questioning them about, whether it's a lack of power, a lack of practice, a lack of the person of Jesus Christ. We know not. But no doubt it was likely, if it follows the pattern that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been uh, 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 using against their master, they were questioning his authority. That's just an assumption, but it is what we've seen throughout his entire ministry so far. Under what authority you do this? Under what authority do you say that? Uh, it's likely they were doing the same thing. Do they not do the same to us now? Under what authority do you say that you're the true church? Under what authority do you claim the mother-daughter succession or that landmarkism or proper mode of baptism, that any of these things are important? Where do you find said authority? That's a question I'm asking. And if you have a form of apologetics, you ought to be able to answer it. Where do you find proof of said authority? The Word of God. And if it's not here, you don't have authority. If it's not in this Word, if it's not illustrated by this book, if there is not a thus saith the Lord, then you ought not do it. You ought not practice it. You ought not speak it. And you ought not believe it. Oh, ye of little faith. None of us raised our hands and said that we have spoken to a mountain to move. None of us have this great faith he speaks of. Does he speak of something unattainable? Now, I'm not saying that you should have the power to move mountains. But I would imagine it's of less impressiveness to move a mountain than to see a lost soul saved. Do you, say, pray, do you pray for lost souls to be saved? Do you pray for the greatest miracle man will ever know? That being the miracle of salvation? The second point is, why could the disciples not drive out the Spirit? Why could the disciples not drive out the Spirit? And a lot of this we can kind of infer from what the scribes were most likely questioning them for. A living by religion versus a living by faith. The disciples were likely trusting in their practices. Re recall that they had been dispatched on previous tours that we had mentioned and performed healing works. Uh, enough to get their confidence up, perhaps. Perhaps that's what they're relying on. Perhaps that's what the scribes are driving home. That the, the power behind those miracles was that you were just being watched by God. Is this not the same accusation that Satan made of Job? He only believes in you, God the Father, because you protect him. Because you've got your hand about him at all hours. Because you won't let any harm come unto him. How could he ever doubt you? How would he ever not trust you? This is the accusation the great accuser brings forth in the chambers of God the Father's halls. God grants permission for those horrible things that happened to Job. And he also grants preservation for Job. 
Job loses his children, his wealth, his prosperity. His own wife says, curse God and die. Gentlemen, you ever heard your wife say that? I don't know that there's a more devastating thing my wife could say than to say, curse God and die. She might have told me to die a few times, but if she says, curse God first, it'd be very alarming, very concerning, and not, not even a whole representation of her but a pretty perfect representation of how I have led my home, if she were to say that to me. But here we see a man who the Lord has essentially said the devil could do everything to except take his life. He was going to learn quickly what living by religion versus living by faith is, and I'm going to have to give it to you for homework for time's sake. You need to read Job if you haven't already. Understand the accusations his friends made. I'll paraphrase some of it. Must be some sin in your life. Anybody heard that? I know for a fact this whole church has. Must be some sin in your life. That's why this won't happen or that won't happen or great blessings won't happen. This church has not received great blessings in the last two years because of me. I know some might think that, but I had nothing to do with it. Being faithful unto God, God's faithful unto you. He's not always going to give you riches for faithfulness, but he's going to make sure you have what you need. But you were also not punished for years without a pastor because of some sin or unfaithfulness. And I wanted to make sure that you've heard that from the pulpit. Heard that from one who's gone through some of it himself. God doesn't work necessarily like that 100% of the time. He's not uh, incapable of it, but that's not his modus operandi. That's not his, his main mode of operations. The power behind those miracles was that they were to have faith in Christ. He says here, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? And we can hear those questions the way I intentionally read them the first time as almost an insult. How much longer shall I put up with your lack of faith? How much longer shall I suffer you in such a miserable state? Or you could read it like this, O faithless generation, how much longer will you have me? to make these types of things possible. How much longer will I be here to answer in your behalf before you believe? Before you believe that I am with you always, even in the end of the earth. The Lord reveals in Matthew's account that it was their unbelief that prevented this healing at the hands of the disciples. He says, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, as we'd said, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out by prayer and fasting. I don't believe he's saying here that it's impossible for you to drive out this demon by praying and fasting. What I believe he's saying is the actual practice, the actual religious uh, motions of going through fasting and praying and fasting and praying. He's talking to a generation that's not so far removed from ashes and, and sh shorning, shaving their heads, making, taking Nazarene vows, doing all of these showy things. I mean, when he goes to heal Lazarus and call him out of the, uh, out of the tomb, when they go to roll away the rock, they had mourning folks there whose own purpose and own intention was the wailing and the moaning and the mourning for the family. And we see it in Acts as well. So that's after this period of time. And I believe what he's telling them here, and I'm not telling you go home and d drive a demon out of a child. I don't think you got enough faith to do it to begin with. But what I'm telling you is he's talking about the acts of prayer and fasting as a showy thing. 
But you're not going to mourner's bench a demon out of some child. And you're not going to recite some prayer to get some demon out of a child. And if this hurts your sensibilities, so be it. You are saved by Christ Jesus' blood and only by Christ Jesus' blood, and you will not invoke power on or through or for his blood. It will be applied as he sees fit. It will be used to the measure as he sees fit. And what he's saying here is you must have faith, even the faith of the size of a grain of mustard seed, in that blood. Not through acts, not through service, not through prayers or candles, but Christ alone. He even points out that it would, would not have been possible for them to heal this boy, but without faith, without belief. And without it, they could do nothing. Living a life of dedication and consecration requires both prayer and discipline. It's not an easy walk. It's not easy... Uh, and you can get yourself caught up in frustration. Even the most faithful of us can get ourselves caught up in frustration when we so desire for one to live a life for the Lord. But we can't make them do it. We can't make them love the Lord. We can't make them desire to be here. We can't make them, this their focus. We have enough struggle, sufficient enough as the evil within ourselves, to make this our focus. We can't make it the focus of someone else. It is frustrating to have to continue to trust that the Lord knows all these things. shouldn't be frustrating, but it is frustrating to our flesh. We want to be able to do it. Heal the world. Anybody remember that song? We want to think that that's something we can do. It's not. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Jesus speaking says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I believe the Lord knew it was going to be frustrating. It's going to be frustrating to see our own actual siblings, perhaps, walk away, receiving nothing when they've heard the gospel. Our own parents, maybe. Our own children. Heartbreaking to see that they wouldn't receive what we hold most precious. But you have to have faith in the one that caused for you to believe. You have to have faith in the one who loved you first. Frustrating to have to trust churches or church members or even communities that call themselves Christian and continue to hurt one another deliberately, spitefully. And we, everyone in this room has been through that one form or another. Hard to say that I should continue to be faithful, continue to put myself in harm's way, continue to trust in these paths when they don't care about me. They'll spitefully use me. They probably will. What would Paul say in what we read in 2 Timothy 3? If you're to follow the Lord, you will be used. You will be hurt. You will have tribulation. And Jesus says in John 16, 33, he has overcome the world. He says here in Matthew 11, yoke up with him. It's easy. And, by the way, he already went through all of it. All that humiliation, all that torture, all that suffering, all that pain spiritually and physically. And he didn't take it from strangers. He took it. 
from the very people he was called the Messiah of. We cannot live and serve on the basis of past victories. We must constantly be alert and disciplined, trusting the Lord to work, trusting that wherever he is, his eye is upon his sheep, trusting in the promises that he has already made. The final point that I have is the Father's plea. I, don't want, to, I want to deal with the Father briefly before we close. His plea, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. In context, this only appears in Mark's account, and it appears to be coming from an emotional dad at the end of his describing his possessed son's symptoms. And I, and I sometimes read these things sarcastically, so let me read it again for you in context. Uh, in the Mark account, Mark 9, verses 14 through 29, the father has been asked to describe what his son's going through. And part of it, he says, this demon taketh him, teareth him, foam, it, it causes him to foameth, gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. He declares there that he's already taken his son to the disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus addresses him, says, bring him forth. And the father, and this is all just using Mark's account, the father brought him, uh, and they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, their spirit kicks up again. And straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. Jesus asked the father, imagine again, this emotional father's estate and now questions from Jesus. How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And this dad who's already gone through the, 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 the hope, I mean, I'm thinking of the woman with the issue of the blood for 12 years, spending all that she had trying to be healed. She's now broke, busted, still bleeding, not solved. Problem not solved. And I think we can all relate having situations where we've put everything into it that should have worked and it didn't work and it's still not solved and it's still not taken care of. And here Jesus says, how long has he had it? And maybe this dad's to the point where, what does that matter? If you can do anything at all, stop asking me questions. I'm just telling you what I would do as a father. Please stop asking me questions and just heal my boy. Put an end to this suffering. He's out of control. He's referred to as a lunatic in one account. Just heal my boy. Just bring him out of this. I don't want you to read it sarcastically as some of these commentators that I read this week do. Perhaps that is how he says it. But when it says, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Alone, that can sound sarcastic, but look at the next sentence. This dad cries out and he says it with tears. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. This is a dad at the end of his rope. This is, as we've talked about, a man undone. A man who has tried and not been able to prove any of the strengths that he was familiar with. He's come to the end of himself, to the great last hope. And these disciples couldn't do anything about it. Then these scribes show up, seemingly taking advantage of the opportunity in the situation. And then the Messiah comes down, and he's already suffered a no from these disciples. He's already suffered shame and humiliation, and the scribes don't seem to care much. And there's just more questions. And he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Read in these words that this isn't a man who says, if you can do anything, I'll sign over my house. If you can do anything, I'll give you my next paycheck. 
This is a man broke, busted, and still bleeding. If you can do anything, have compassion on us because we don't deserve it. Have compassion on us because we can't afford it. But help us. You ever been there? You ever been to the point where you have no reason to hope anymore? And you cry out if there's any means of compassion, any means of help. There's nothing I can do to make you want to give it to me. But help us. Simon Peter was there. Lord, save me! As he plummets into the water. His dad, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. That might sound like a contradiction. I believe, help thou mine unbelief. As I said at the beginning of the day, there are no perfect Christians. There are no perfect individuals ready for church membership. You're saved, you're ready. Because that's faithfulness. You're saved, that's what you're supposed to do next. You have to believe at that point of salvation. And you're being faithful. And you're calling on the church and the Lord himself, help mine unbelief. There's still unbelief there. I believe that you are the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. I believe that you are Ephesians 5 able. But there's still unbelief. Imagine this dad. He's standing in front of nine disciples who also still have unbelief. I don't believe he was taunting Jesus. His son, which hath a dumb spirit, and wheresoever he taketh him. His son's not even in control of himself. Wherever, wherever the father takes him, this dad takes his son. The demon tears at him, causes him to foam, gnashes with his teeth. We don't hear what, is, what is the teeth are gnashing on. He's probably gnashing on his own flesh. Maybe he tries to gnash on his father's flesh and stranger's flesh. Demons don't have a care for one over another. And pineth away. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire, one account says, and into the waters to destroy him. Uh, I know some of y'all, it's been a while since you've had a baby. And that one just started walking. You can imagine the fears. The hill one, at one point cast himself into a fire or cast himself in the water, not because of demonic possession, just clumsiness and carelessness. But this is a child who, who something inside of him is literally compelling his body into one harm and compelling his body into another harm. This is a dad completely worn out. And we look, look at Rebecca's face as she tries to keep that little one alive. This is a dad who every moment of the day is trying to keep his son alive. He's at the end of himself. This is a father at the end of a torturous journey in which he could not deliver his son from this horrible state, which is something else we haven't even dealt with. This is a dad that can't help his boy. This is a dad whose knees are taken right out from underneath him. He can't save his son. He can't find anyone who can save his son, who can restore his son. We don't know how old the boy is, but since he was a child, he's had this. He can't find any means of restoration for his boy. Listen again to his response. The father straightway immediately cried out and said with tears. I should have looked it up, but I don't know how many times we see the phrase that someone speaks with tears. I know we see that Simon and Peter wept and that Jesus wept. 
but I believe they were silent in the moment they were weeping. This man crying out with tears, speaking with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. This is a point we need to be brought to if we are to pray for the salvation of our young ones. Are we desperately praying for the salvation of the lost in our family and community in this way? I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Heal this one. She or he won't find healing in the world. Father, if you have any compassion at all for this one, show her mercy. Show him mercy. Save their soul. Spare them. This is a picture of a lost individual, and I know we've exhausted this picture with all the others that have been healed, but again, this is a picture of someone who is lost, rebelling against God, throwing themselves from one harm into another. We've seen it in our study of Genesis. As mankind as a species continues to throw itself into one harm and then throw itself into another harm, it is us as though we are possessed with the very depravity that is our curse. Help thou uh, my unbelief. Show compassion, Father, on these lost souls. Oh, how we ought to write this event upon our hearts. How we ought to picture ourselves, dads, as this man, this unnamed father that brings... I mean, think of the time period, too. This is a dad who brings his child to the Lord's people for a healing. Put yourself in this narrative. We have, over the past three lessons from this study, a mountaintop and a valley experience. I don't know that you can get any higher up the mountain than what we saw at the Transfiguration. And I don't know that you can get any lower in the valley than where this father is. With the Lord, the three saw visions of the afterlife and heard the voice of God the Father. In the valley, the nine lost strength, displaying a lack of faith. The possessed went on in suffering, and a father's heart continued to break. Yet the Lord was good on both planes. The Lord reached down to James, John, and Simon Peter as they were face down in the dirt after the Father spoke to them from the cloud, comforted them, and lifted them up. And the Lord does the same for this father and this demoniac child. You're not a father. Gentlemen, you've been a son. Ladies, you've been a daughter. This is a relationship that every single person in here can relate to. By design, scriptures knew we would need to be able to relate to this. Is there not one in your life that you most desperately want to see saved? That you most desperately want to see healed? I have a niece that I may never be able to speak to on spiritual matters ever again because of her mother. She lost her father at an incredibly young age. And I pray very often for her salvation. I can't do anything to save her soul. I can't do anything to restore her, to keep her from going into one harm and then another. She's seeking strength in things of this world. She's led that way, but I'll leave that alone. She just lost a puppy dog this past week, and it was like losing her dad all over again. We're not going to find strength in our pets. We're not going to find strength in our hobbies. And we're not going to find healing there either.
This world needs Jesus. You all may be the only Bibles they ever read, the only examples, the only sources of light. What are we doing with it? Time's drawing nigh. We're going home soon. I ask you to take seriously the matter of prayer for lost souls, that a great healing would come from the only source it could. <laughs>